busy trying to see who's wrong and why they're wrong. and It's like, well, where's the love? Jesus died on the cross. And don't get me wrong. We have to make sure that we don't love in a way that invalidates doctrine either. But guess what? Thank God Jesus still loves those who are not doctrinally perfect or else we'd all be up a creek without a paddle. All of our theology is growing, isn't it? We're all learning and understanding. But the church in Pergamos, they compromised. You know those funny video clips of people falling, tripping, or slipping awkwardly to the ground or into a pool or onto someone else? They're hilarious to everyone, except perhaps the person falling. They're just embarrassed. When we hold ourselves up to God's standards, we're constantly falling into a heap of failure. Jesus is watching all our embarrassing missteps, but his response is a loving one. He has achieved perfection and allows us to huddle beneath His umbrella of righteousness, perfected in Him. The 21st century American in the things of their heart is any different from the 1st century person in a Greco-Roman culture or a 1st century B.C. person in medial Persia or wherever. The human heart has always been the same. People have always been selfish, murderous, lying. We've always done that. We've always wanted to be loved and cared for. We always desire kindness. Humanity, although the details have changed, well, I have a cell phone in my pocket or we're in a large room with air conditioning and we're grateful for some of the detail changes. But the human heart is not different. And you know how you'll know that if you read history? Just study history. Anything that's going on today has gone on in the past. You guys know the old quote, those who do not know history are what? Are doomed to repeat it. Why? Because everything comes back around again. And if you study history, you'll realize that people have always been the same. The same thing goes on. The only difference is now our warfare is with biological weapons and smart bombs. And back in the day, it was with axes and hatchets or muskets. Now you have guerrilla warfare before people just line up and just shoot each other. But war still happens, and it still happens for the same reason. I mean, people are complaining about the government's taxation plan. You know, that happened in our country about 300 years ago. They were complaining about taxation without representation. Now we're complaining about taxation with representation. See, humanity has always been the same. And so God's word, because God created humans, and not only does he know what we are, he knows what he created us to be, the inherent potential that God created within humanity, he can say, look, this is what's right, and this is what's wrong. And for those of you who are saying, oh, well, listen, that's just old school, I challenge you to read the Bible and think about it. Think about the teachings of Jesus. When Jesus says, love your enemies, guess what? That's as important today as it was 2,000 years ago when he said it. But do you love your enemies? No, neither do I. I'm learning. But it's still true. 
When the Apostle Paul says, live peaceably with all men when it's within your power. Is that still true? It is. Don't gossip. <laughs> I mean, Gossip Girl existed long before it was on TV. See, humanity's always been the same. And God's word, if you actually read it with a thoughtful mind, and you can say, okay, look, in this culture, things look like that, but the principles still apply. God's word is a sword. Listen to Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. It says, for the word of God is living and powerful. Now get this, sharper than any two-edged sword. Going down to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Now, what that says is that God's word, it's even sharper it, it delineates stronger justice than the most just place. And he goes, it pierces to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. That's a powerful statement. It's saying that God's word has laser-like focus. That's what it means. When it says, what's the division of soul and spirit? I read lots of books on the science of consciousness, the psychology of consciousness, the spirituality of consciousness, and people who are way smarter than I am have no clue how to divide down between soul and spirit. But God's word does. It's got a laser-like focus. I mean, think about what lasers do. I mean, there was a, back in the day, before lasers, if you need to get your arm amputated, it was nasty. I mean, you don't even want to think about it, Right? Now they can go on down. They can do surgery on your eyes. They just go on in there, just with a little laser. How many of you had LASIK surgery? I haven't. That sounds crazy, but it works, right? And it wasn't painful at all. I mean, someone going into my eye and cutting my things up, that would hurt. But you go on in there with a little laser, it's like, boom. I remember I was talking to the guy about it. He's like, oh, yeah, it's very quick. It's painless, no problem. It's laser surgery. I'm like, God's word's a laser. And God's word which is a sword, which shows what's right and wrong. It goes right down into our hearts and just like perfect heart surgery. It says, boom, this is where you are. Notice it's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of our hearts. It's like, look, this is what's in your heart. This is the motivation behind the motivation. And that's why when we get into God's word, we start to change really quickly. Because all of a sudden, we start seeing ourselves mirrored back to us by God's living and powerful word. And we start saying, man, I got to grow. It's all about love. I'm not a loving person. It's all about giving and serving. I don't really serve anybody. I actually want everyone to serve me. And then Jesus says, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And you're like, man. It's an alternative stimuli that teaches a whole new way to be human. That's why God's word's a sword. But what you also have to realize is not only is God's word the ultimate, empowered by the Spirit, the ultimate way to change a person, it is also the benchmark by which each one of our lives are judged. And that, brothers and sisters, is where the rubber meets the road. Right there. That God's word, how our lives stack up to God's word, that is the plumb line 
for eternity, right there. And you know what that teaches each one of us? It teaches each one of us that we're in a world of hurt apart from Jesus Christ. Because when you read the word, you realize, as I realize every day, that I fall infinitely short of this. That I am not even in the league Like, if it's a Major League Baseball game, I am playing t-ball and I'm striking out. Because God's standard is so stringent and perfect and beautiful, and I live woefully short. And that is not, hey, I'm getting graded on a curve. I'm not as bad as Adolf Hitler, Jeffrey Dahmer, your least favorite politician or whatever. I'm not like them, so I'm okay. God doesn't grade on the curve. He's like, look, this is the standard by which you are judged. And we all fall so short. And that, brothers and sisters, is exactly why God sent Jesus. That's the gospel. This is why Christians have always grabbed hold of that cross, the cross of Jesus Christ, because it says, look, you can't do it. You try. Some of us don't try at all, but you can't do it. The standard is too high. I have already fallen way short. It'd be like you need to get a perfect 10 in in diving, and your first 10 dives, you just belly flopped, each one of them. No matter how good you dive after that, you still got a series of zeros. Maybe if you're lucky, you get into the sevens and into the eights, but the only way you get to the medal round is to have a 10. And the Christian gospel says, look, God knew it. Before humanity was even created, God said, look, I'm going to send my son because you guys are belly flopping as a rule. I've been thinking about belly flopping. I was at the pool the other day. Nothing worse than sitting watching kids jump off the high dive. That's like watching a slow train wreck. And this one kid, he went down, you heard the slap of the water and you thought to yourself, oh, this poor dude. And he kind of came out and everyone was like, nice belly flop. I was like, man, people are mean. And I started praying for that poor kid, thanking God it wasn't mine. I'm just kidding. I was like, thank you. (laughs) You see, I need Jesus, brothers and sisters. You need Jesus. Because that's the way the mind works. You're like looking around for the poor kid's parents. You know, you're like... You know what's beautiful, though? When you belly flop, God still loves you. That's what God's word tells us. Again, that's what the sword of God tells us. It says, look, you belly flop last night. You belly flop yesterday, but God still loves you. And God said, look, I know you belly flop. I'm going to give you a perfect 10. Not because you're ever going to get a perfect dive, but because Jesus is the perfect diver. And even though you feel silly that you belly flopped, I still love you and you're still my kid. Your place at my family table is not dependent on your perfection of your dive. It's because I've invited you to be here. And that's the gospel. But God's word's a sword. And we need to take God's word seriously. Now, in verse 13, we move into what's going good at the church in Pergamos. It says, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith. Even the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Now, you notice this repetition. I know where you dwell, where Satan 
throne is. Antipas was killed where Satan dwells. What this means is that Jesus understands your situation. That's what it means. Jesus understands your situation. The church in Pergamos was one of the centers of what they would call the imperial cult. Remember, the Roman Caesars, they realized that it was one thing to be a ruler. It was another thing to be a god. And just if you don't know what I'm talking about, just ask Kanye West. It's one thing to be a hip-hop artist. It's another thing to be a god. If you don't know what I'm talking about, maybe you don't want to Google it. But Kanye West has got this delusions of grandeur that he's God. His, you know, his new, he's a good artist, but his whole thing is screwed up. He also realizes if he talks about God in a pejorative way, he'll sell a lot of albums, which is another funny thing about our culture, but that's a whole other discussion. But the Caesars weren't content to be just rulers. They weren't content. So they, they made all of the Caesars gods. And so in order to live in the Roman Empire, you, need, you needed to be part of what they called the imperial cult, which is where you made offerings to the living ruler who was the Caesar. And Pergamus was one of the centers of this. Supposedly, Pergamus was the birthplace of Zeus. There were all sorts of temples and all these things there. And the church in Pergamus was in a situation in uh, circumstances that were already compromised. And Jesus is saying to him, look, I know where you are. I know your works. I know where you dwell. I know that all around you is imperial cult worship. I know it. And brothers, sisters, listen. In compromising, Jesus knows where we live. He knows all the struggles that you and I have because we live in a culture that is compromised to the core. I mean, some of you can remember the day when late night TV was Joan Cleaver and her family. I mean, it's a different world today. You know, it's like you look at late night TV today and it's not Leave It to Beaver. It's not the Brady Bunch. It's a whole other thing going on. You go onto your computer. You just want to check your sports scores and you're bombarded with images, airbrushed images. See, Jesus understands the situation. He realizes that you and I, just like the church in Pergamos, live in a place that's already compromised. And because our situation is in the midst of a culture that doesn't want to honor God, we are all continually tempted. Continually tempted. You know, it's interesting. I've been starting to check out late night television or, you know, regular TV because I want to see what the culture is telling me. And you know what's interesting? You know what I've noticed? Almost all the TV shows are now about the sexually liberated woman. Where it used to be all about guys being dogs, now it's about girls being dogs. Desperate housewives. I mean, think about what that's saying. I don't even know if that's even on TV anymore. It might have been yesterday. See, there was a time when, and it was interesting, I started checking it out because I was listening to a TED Talk and they were talking about how the television tells the consciousness of a culture. And it was a phenomenal TED Talk. This woman had been in TV for 30 years and she was doing all this analysis about what was going on in television and why, how when unemployment is up and when catastrophes happen, all like supernatural shows get very, very popular because people want to escape from their reality. And it was a very fascinating study. And so I'm like, I wonder what's going on on television today. And I was a little bit appalled. So I'm like, wow. 
It was one thing for guys to be promiscuous, but now over and over and over again, they're promoting female promiscuity. And you look at the New York Times bestseller list, it's the same thing. And you wonder why gals are fleeing their marriages, straying from their marriages, find themselves daydreaming about other men. That used to just be predominantly a guy problem. Now it's both sexes. See, Satan knows where, God knows where we dwell. He realized that this is 21st century America, where you and I live. He understands the situation. He understood it for the church in Pergamos. He's like, look, I know where you dwell. I know your works. But you, and you hold fast my name. I like that. He's saying, look, even though you're in a compromised culture, you hold fast. You grasp tightly. He said, even in the days when Antipas was my faithful martyr where Satan dwells. So there was one amongst our number, a man named Antipas. We don't know anything about him other than this reference, that he gave up his life in Pergamos for his faith in Jesus. But I ask you, because we're going to find in a moment that Jesus understood their situation, but they also gave into their situation. I ask you, brother, sister, here, online, in the chapel, what are you giving into today? What part of our compromised culture have you snuggled up next to, become part of your daily life, your daily routine, that at one point in your life you said, I'll never do that, and now today you're doing it? The church in Pergamos lived in a compromised culture. Some people held strong, but you're going to find in one second that some of them gave in and compromised. Look at verse 14. But I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus, you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. So these two verses teaches us simple two words. Don't compromise. Don't compromise. Don't compromise. Jesus understood where they were, what was around them. He says, but I have this against you. And there was two doctrines. First, the doctrine of Balaam in verse 14, and then the doctrine of the Nicolaitans in verse 15. They embraced teaching, aberrant thoughts, aberrant ideas that gave them over to a compromised lifestyle, and Jesus didn't like it. He didn't like it. Now, there's no doubt a contrast here between the first letter to the church in Ephesus and now the church in Pergamos. The church in Ephesus was doctrinally stringent, but it caused them to leave their devotion. They were so focused on being right that they missed the boat on loving God and others exceedingly. The church in Pergamos wasn't doctrinally stringent, and it caused them to live a compromised life. So it's interesting that no matter what you do, there's always a shadow side. So we believe here at Crossroads in being doctrinally stringent. We believe in the Bible, but we have to make sure that we don't become so doctrinally stringent that we don't love people, that we're so busy with our Bibles beating people over the head, and, oh, that person's a sinner, and that person's a pagan, and I can't believe the church... Knowledge puffs up and love edifies. 
And I think that's the biggest, one of the biggest issues in modern evangelicalism is we're so busy trying to see who's wrong and why they're wrong. And it's like, well, where's the love? Jesus died on a cross. Now, don't get me wrong. We have to make sure that we don't love in a way that invalidates doctrine either. But guess what? Thank God Jesus still loves those who are not doctrinally perfect or else we'd all be up a creek without a paddle. All of our theology is growing, isn't it? We're all learning and understanding. But the church in Pergamos, they compromised. Notice, first, the doctrine of Balaam. Now, you can read the story of Balaam, Numbers 22, 23, 24, and 25. It's right there in the Old Testament. But notice what it says. You have those there who hold to the doctrine of Balaam. Notice, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Now, if you read Numbers 22 to 25, and you can read it on your own time. I read it every day this week. It takes about 10 minutes, and I'm not necessarily a fast reader. What you find is that Balak was the king of the Moabites, and he didn't like the fact that the children of Israel were coming into the promised land. And he thought to himself, I know what I'll do. There's this man named Balaam, and Balaam's a prophet of God. And I can have Balaam come, and because God, he understands God better than I do, he's going to curse the children of Israel. Right? And so he sends some people to Balaam, and the Lord says, Balaam, I don't want you to go with them. And Balaam's like, I can't go. So Balak comes back. He finds out that Balaam won't go. And so Balaam, Balak's like, well, I'll send even more prestigious people. Because the reason he didn't come is because I didn't send my top lieutenants. So sure enough, he sends more people. And God says, okay, Balaam, go. But while Balaam's on the way, you guys probably know the story, right? There was an angel of the Lord who was going to off Balaam. And remember, Balaam's donkey was getting in trouble because the, the donkey saw it, but Balaam didn't see it. And then finally, the donkey started talking to Balaam. Yeah, that's in, it's in there. You might be saying, oh, see, this is why Christianity is crazy. How can animals talk? I'm like, just YouTube it. I mean, come on. You guys ever YouTube animals talking? It's awesome, man. I want my dog to talk to me. That sounds so much fun. And if you don't believe it, you can just watch the Dr. Doolittle movies with Eddie Murphy. Those are good, too. <laughs> Those, I was a, sorry, I have kids. The donkey starts talking to Balaam, and Balaam didn't realize that the donkey was protecting him. But you know what happens? Balaam gets there. He's like, look, I can only do what God tells me to do. And four times, you know what Balaam does? He blesses God's people. And Balak's getting mad. He's like, I, I brought you to curse me. He's like, I can only say what God's telling me to say. And every single time, every single time, Balaam comes back and blesses the people of God. But the problem with Balaam is Balaam was more focused on his own honor than he was focused on the honor of God. So because he couldn't curse him from God, he gave Balak a tip. He said, listen, I want you to send the women into the camp and they'll seduce the men. They'll sleep with the men and the men will start worshiping pagan idols. And then God will forsake his people. Balaam couldn't curse them from the Lord, so he said, look, this is how to make them compromise. That's how you do it. Jesus is real. We live in a place that's already compromised, bombarded with temptation daily to give up just a little bit of faith and put it somewhere else. 
Jesus knows that, just as he understood that from the church in Pergamos. They were situated amongst a culture of sinful practices. As Pastor Daniel assured us, Jesus doesn't give up on us because we belly-flopped in the past. He's achieved a perfect 10, and he's invited us to share it. For most of us, our smartphone is an extension of our body. They are constantly ringing and dinging, telling us what to do and where to go next. We want to encourage you to subscribe to the Jesus is Real podcast. Each week, the programs right here on the radio are available in podcast format. So if you miss one of the broadcasts, you can always catch up by subscribing to the Jesus is Real podcast. Log on to JesusIsRealRadio.com. Next time on Jesus is Real Radio, we'll hear about how our particular society is continuously evolving toward a more blatantly sinful culture. Our recent Supreme Court decision proves that. We have to find out our individual area of compromise and flip it back in line with Jesus. Don't be worried about those around us. You've been listening to Jesus is Real Radio with Pastor Daniel Fusco of Crossroads Community Church. Pastor Daniel will continue teaching through his series entitled Case Study next time. Until then, may God bless.